we have exciting news. Our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now for pre-orders from all major retailers. And we have a special offer. Once you pre-order, share your proof of purchase with us and receive a copy of our first chapter. Visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for retailer links and all the details. I was very struck by how unrepresentative the population was that used the hospice compared mm. to the communities in which it was situated. That was Dr. Heather Richardson, policy lead at St. Christopher's Hospice in South London, UK. She was previously the Joint Chief Executive at St. Christopher's and was the National Clinical Lead for Hospice UK. We talk about the current and future state of hospice care and her thoughts into how hospices can follow a public health approach and become connectors in the community. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you very much. Well, we're really excited. We met in Montreal at the International Congress for Palliative Care. And, you know, we learned about your exciting career and we just thought it would be such a great opportunity for our podcast to learn more about the UK and what you're seeing um, from another country's perspective, but also, you know, all the experience you have about this field. So, but I thought we would start maybe way back at the beginning. Um, you started your career in general nursing, mental health nursing. What drew you to make a career out of, in palliative care? It's, it was a bit of an accident, but when I look back retrospectively, I realise it probably wasn't. Um, I think that I really, um, I enjoyed being both a mental health nurse and a general nurse, uh, but I was very frustrated. If I was in general nursing, I could see elements of people's psychological well-being, emotional well-being, uh, spiritual health that was just completely unattended to. And then when I went into psychiatry, because I did a course that was integrated, I would see amazing attention to people's psychological needs, but almost nothing to people's physical needs. And um, that always felt to me uh, like um, a very polarized experience of holistic care. Um, and then when I qualified, I um, spent a bit of time in psychiatry and then I went and worked in uh, cancer research. And when I was in cancer research, uh, it was in the 80s. Uh, we, we were trialing pretty brutal chemotherapies and uh, we considered success only on the basis of uh, survival time. And I remember being really challenged personally about that. When I met women and others who were taking very toxic drugs and I asked them about their experiences, uh, we might be extending their life, we thought perhaps by weeks or months, but they were describing uh, of an experience of, vomit of nausea and vomiting and of being, um, uh, uh, disconnected from their families, for example, when they had severe neutropenia, that even to my untrained eye, I realized was not quality of life. And I started to become interested in this notion of quality of life, uh, even if it was at the cost of quantity of life, 
And I didn't realize then that there was a specialism that had uh, really grasped that and was going to nurture quality of life, even if it, if, even if it did mean um, that you weren't necessarily extending life. Uh, and so I fell into palliative care, but when I got into it, I realized what a natural home it was for me because attending to people's needs in the most holistic way was exactly what I loved doing. Um, and when I had been a student nurse, I was always in trouble for doing the stuff that uh, whatever the context I was in didn't recognize or value as important. Um, so it, it, it felt like I was coming home, uh, even though I was finding it for the first time. How funny, you know, it's so true. I mean, so many of the conversations we have is that palliative care talks about person-centered care. It really is truly person-centered care and uh, thinking about what's important to them rather than sort of what you went in, you know, as a clinician to do and address this need or what have you. And it's sort of flipping it around. It's really defined by the patient. So I, that totally resonates with me. Um, one of the big, you know, big parts of your career was when you were leading St. Christopher's Hospice in the mm -hmm. UK. And for several years, and uh, just to remind our listeners, St. Christopher's Hospice is, you know, the hospice Dame Cicely Saunders founded in 1967. Um, and Dame Cicely Saunders is the uh, founder of the modern hospice movement. And you were the CEO there. And it must have been um, what an, a, an amazing place I imagine that it was to work with. So I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about how hospice, this idea of hospice care is delivered in the UK, and what were some of the challenges that you face as as a director or an executive director of a hospice? I think um, uh, hospice care in the UK has a very certain character. The vast majority of hospices uh, in this country are independent charities. Not all of them. There are uh, uh, hospices within the National Health Service. I've worked in one. Um, but the character of hospice care is uh, in no small part due to the independence uh, of many of the hospices. Um, they tend to be, uh, and this is not true of St. Christopher's, but they tend to be quite small places. Uh, they very often been born of people's personal experience, uh, aspiration to change um, uh, an experience of poor death in an area. Uh, most hospices were, had no strategic planning uh, uh, in their origins. Um, and so uh, one of the uh, less attractive uh, characteristics of hospice care in the UK is the inevitable in inequities that exist because some areas are overprovided for arguably, some are underprovided for, and the, uh, the shape of the services uh, where they focus their efforts, how much money they have, uh, is hugely variable. Um, St. Christopher's is one of the biggest hospices in the UK. It serves a population of 1.6 or 1.7 million people. Um, but there are many hospices in this country that would serve populations of um, 200,000, 300, 400,000. So, uh, although we talk about them as uh, with a kind of generic name, uh, actually they are hugely variable uh, in what they do um, and who works there and uh, and so on. Uh, but yeah. they, but they do have a common character, uh, which is that they 
They sit very often with one foot in the health and social care system that's uh, the public sector and one foot in uh, a community oriented charity um, uh, uh, basis. Uh, and that makes them pretty unique. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I have loved working in hospice care because I, I love this notion of being a community asset as well as being part of the health and social care systems. Um, and I, I know that a lot of our creativity, uh, a lot of the, um, the opportunity that we have to be very um, timely and flexible and innovative in our response is because we have an element of independence. Um, there are downsides to that too. And uh, we can often uh, fail to recognize responsibilities that we have in the system, but uh, there are some, some, real, some really beautiful opportunities in it as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how your system compares to that in Canada or in other countries that you have you know, traveled to, but you know, I know you have Macmillan nurses mm -hmm. or cancer nurses that go out and, and sort of provide home and community supports as a layer. So does that mean that the hospices are really sort of the bricks and mortar where they have, we call them residential hospices in Canada, but sort of beds where people, you know, spend their last maybe week or so, or maybe three uh, weeks or so. And then if they're, or, or are these hospices ability to have like outreach programs where they can go, the providers can go out into the community and go into people's homes? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, um, there is a misconception, and it's true in the UK as well as in other parts of the world, which is that essentially hospices in the UK are buildings, they're the inpatient units. Um, and that is simply not true for the majority of hospices. Um, at St Christopher's, uh, we would probably on an average day have about uh, 1300 people in our care. And only 30 of those would be on our inpatient unit. So uh, the inpatient unit, which is what everybody relates to us uh, as being, is a tiny tip of the iceberg. And the majority of our work is either delivered in people's homes, uh, in residential facilities that we would call care homes, um, nursing homes or residential homes, um, uh, or via outpatient uh, services. Uh, including lots and lots of rehabilitation. Um, so there are there are quite a few misconceptions, and they they you know they're they're perpetuated over many years, and uh, they're definitely how the public see us. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm wondering if you have the same issue that we'd have. That I mean, part of the waiting revolution was to go upstream, and I wonder mm -hmm. if you know not just the perception of of hospice care being just you know delivered at end of life but do you find that you find that you meet people with your services very late in their trajectory because that's the same particularly for us even when people get referred to palliative care i think the average is you know about 40% get it for 18 days or less their first referral to palliative care that's in ontario using some of our data and of course there are some patients who might get it for 3 months before or in you know they're often cancer patients but for yeah. the by and large you know, hospice or palliative care is still delivered very late. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's, if you, if, if, if it's different in the UK. It's sadly, definitely the case here in the UK. 
And uh, that is hugely disappointing. It's very disappointing for uh, people who could benefit from our services and their families. Uh, but it's also really disappointing for uh, staff who work in hospices and volunteers and indeed the referrers and the wider system. It doesn't work really for anybody. And it's the biggest conundrum that I think that we face. There is so much evidence, uh, UK and beyond, that early referral to palliative care uh, has so many benefits for people. And I think that's one of the reasons that I loved your programme uh, when you spoke uh, as at one of the plenaries and uh, when I followed it up in conversation, because I think uh, there is something about really aspiring to a much earlier experience of palliative care. Uh, and, it's, and, it, and it's not just about the timing, it's about the responsibility that everybody takes for getting people into the right place uh, at the right time. Um, and you are more, more likely to get a timely referral or uh, to hospice care in the UK if you have a diagnosis of cancer. If you have a diagnosis of frailty or dementia, those opportunities are vastly uh, diminished. Um, and that feels a tragedy. Um, and, I, and I, I have been working in our sector for a long time. Um, and I, my biggest concern for us in the UK, this is a personal concern, is that we become increasingly transactional rather than relational in our approach. And yeah. I think transaction is often uh, both a consequence and indeed the, the, um, the rationale for very late referral um, because it's relationship that allows you to do the upstream work. It's relationship that allows you to get underneath the surface and truly understand what's really going on for that family and to persuade them that early palliative care could be really useful to them. Um, and then when you have relationship, uh, both the, the people that are going to get the care and the people delivering the care have a very positive experience because they are, they are in relationship. Yeah, how interesting. I mean, there's so much there. And I wondered if, is that, because I also read that you, uh, you know, did your PhD looking at experience of hospice. Was that what you did some of your research on? Or, or is this just your observations from being in the field? Well, my PhD was, uh, I really loved my PhD. I know some people have um, a real struggle, but I did mine in the middle of working life. And I, I answered a conundrum that I had genuinely uh, been fascinated by for a long time. Uh, and in the UK, we have something called day hospice, or we did used to have something called day hospice. It's less uh, available now. Um, and it's... Uh, it's, it's kind of morphed into something else. But um, I had been responsible for both commissioning uh, and delivering day hospice services. And Is that I like, adult, like an adult day program? Yes, supports, exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. And, and um, uh, people that are seriously ill might come in once a week. They'd normally come on the same day every week. Um, and I genuinely could not understand what its value was. Um, I, I knew that people enjoyed coming. 
um, I watched and witnessed uh, lots and lots of activities that happened and they were hugely variable. They might be complementary therapies or art uh, therapy or, or diversional work. Um, but I, I was really uh, mystified as to whether this was of huge value, but I just genuinely didn't understand what it was or whether we had some crazy expensive service and everybody was going through the motions. And I wouldn't say that this is a direct link to my concerns about relational care, but what I did realize, what I, what I was exposed to and really interested in was just how important community was to people who were experiencing social death. Mm. And um, so many of our day hospices in the UK were uh, were absolutely essential places for people who had outlived their their prognosis, for example. So they'd been given three months or six months, and then they'd lived two years or three years or more, and they had experienced the kind of social death that you can read about in the literature, where their families had moved on, um, their friends had uh, kind of disconnected. And they got left behind and liminally they were living uh, in a different world. They knew that their families were still planning the future and they were stuck somewhere in not knowing that whether they had a tomorrow or a next week or a next month. And uh, what day hospice was for those individuals was a community in which they could actually be normal. They were with everybody else who experienced the same um, liminal and existential angst and uh, that community was co-created with volunteers and staff who also created this experience of normality uh, mm -hmm. and community and I found that absolutely fascinating and it gave me real insight uh, I didn't realize it at the time but it it really helped me appreciate the level of loneliness that often exists the moment that you have uh, a diagnosis of a progressive and an advancing condition. Um, and that even if you live for quite a long time, you are immediately separated by that diagnosis from other people around you. Um, and of course now, uh, uh, at St. Christopher's, we have less than 50% of our patients have cancer. Uh, a lot more of our patients are living with frailty, multiple uh, morbidities into late old age and so on. And their experience of loneliness is even more profound than people that are living with and dying from cancer, um, as mm. you well know, because very often they've got these very extended trajectories um, and they're often very elderly, and so their peer group has died. Um, and of course, COVID has yeah. exacerbated that even further. So I was reading in your bio that you have grown more and more interested in public health approaches to palliative care and community-driven programs that are reaching people earlier in their illness. So I'm curious, what was the moment that led to a shift from seeing the benefits of just the brick and mortar hospices to uh, an expanded view of a broader public health approach. So I can remember that um, moment of enlightenment really, really clearly. 
I went to work at a hospice in East London uh, called St Joseph's Hospice and it exists, uh, it's based in, um, as I say, East London, a very culturally diverse uh, area with some really significant pockets of deprivation. Uh, it's, it's a very old hospice. Uh, Cicely Saunders did a lot of her seminal work there before she set up St Christopher's. Um, and I was very struck when I went there. This is a long time ago. It was about 2006. Um, I was very struck by how unrepresentative the population was that used the hospice compared mm. to communities in which it was situated. And... Um, I became really fascinated by this uh, and I engaged in a, a quite a, um, uh, well, it was, it was expensive, it was, um, it was imagine creative piece of work with a community development organisation. And uh, it wasn't necessarily my creativity. I think I really want to say how brave I thought the organisation was uh, when I persuaded them, they, they really went with it. Um, and we had a series of conversations with local groups uh, of people who didn't use the hospice at all about why that was the case and whether there were gaps and whether we could change um, or uh, whether there was something quite different that we could help provide for them. And um, that was a series of fascinating conversations. Um, it was incredible to me that there were whole pockets of population who didn't know anything about hospice care. Uh, that was the first thing. And um, it was the first time that I really was exposed to some of your central tenets around people's asset base, for example, and about the fact that actually people wanted to draw on their own strengths and the strengths of people around them, rather than believing in institutions, um, professionals, uh, the health system. In fact, they had quite a high level of suspicion around it and um, felt very anxious about some of our structures and processes that they felt would inhibit things uh, related to their cultural and religious life, uh, particularly for some of the Islamic communities that we spoke to. And I was really... Um, it, it was such important conversation um, and they wanted a parity, they wanted respect, they were very respectful to us, but they were also very clear about the way that they wanted to both live and ideally to die. And uh, because we had a very skilled community development organization working with us, they negotiated that really beautifully and they taught me a lot about how you create environments where there is greater parity, where institutions and professionals share power appropriately uh, and so on. But um, I learned at first hand that actually professionals weren't everything. This wasn't just about us opening our doors wider or persuading people that they should be using us and could and so on. This was about a different kind of relationship. You know, that is so fascinating to me because um, it connects to this idea about new power and sharing or even seeding and giving up power to communities, which is all key to building a social movement like what we are trying to do at Waiting Revolution. So I'm curious, 
how did this enlightenment or these experiences, how did they affect your work? Uh, we, we then began a program called Compassionate Neighbours. And um, I had seen uh, a public uh, engagement program in End of Life in Kerala. And with a colleague, Libby Sauno, we decided to try and set it up in East London. And what this, this was really critical. It definitely had positive impact for the people who were living lonely, isolated lives and who wanted some sort of genuine friendship. And they were uh, offered a compassionate neighbor and a relationship developed. But the real benefit was for the compassionate neighbors because they learned a language, they made relationships, they were often encouraged to connect across difference. Um, they learned life skills that then meant that when they became sick, they were way more ready for the kind of um, uh, decisions, opportunities that your program gives people than would have ever been possible if they'd have been coming into to contact with palliative care for the first time. And so that's when I suddenly started to realize that to work upstream is not necessarily about working with people who are sick now. It's about working with people who are well, who can then prepare themselves. And that's at the heart of what you are interested in and drive. And I think that's why so much of when I listened to you and your colleagues, because I suddenly thought, ah, oh, that's what we're missing in the UK completely. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of a program, NavCare, um, where they train volunteers. And I think it's being rolled out in Europe as well. But it's it's that same idea of, uh, of mm -hmm. volunteerism and, and, and connecting with community. And I'm just, and it's interesting because do you feel that through that experience, because it started with the cultural or the recognition that, um, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways hospice or how it's often delivered and imagined has a very, uh, you know, Western leaning or sort of a medical leaning. And mm -hmm. in many cultures and religions, that's not the only way they think they envision health and wellness. And so did you feel that you learned about of changing the way you talk about palliative care with different cultures? Or was it more about... Um, recognizing that each culture and community has its own strengths and to allow those to naturally flourish? I think it uh, is both, actually. Um, and um, to, when, I, when you, you ask a really important question, which is, is it about how you have the right conversations with people? And what that program taught me is that it's not necessarily about people like me trying to influence um, local people to come and use services that uh, uh, people like me have decided to put in place and are um, shaping and, and trying to deliver well. Um, it, it is about a very different starting point and a different set um, of conversations. And um, I come from a a background where I've had very, very good experience of institutional life. Um, I've had good schooling, I've had good health, I've had really good experience of the police, for example. So I, I naturally uh, really trust institutions, but so many of the communities that I connected with had not had that experience of institutions. 
they had reasons to be very, very anxious. And um, uh, particularly if they uh, had uh, issues around immigration, for example, or they had uh, suffered racism uh, or other inequalities that had completely compromised their opportunities. And so they had created uh, alternative means of doing much the same that I've become dependent on institutions uh, and professionals for. And it wasn't just that it was a cheaper alternative, it was a preferential alternative to them. So I remember, for example, talking to the um, Bangladeshi community and the Somali community, and they were talking about the fact that for them, uh, psychological care or social care, they wanted that to be, uh, in an ideal world, that took the form of friendships with others who shared a lot of their cultural beliefs, their particular uh, food preferences, um, their lifestyles, and so on. And so uh, people like St. Joseph's putting in um, compassionate neighbours that had completely different cultural backgrounds, sometimes it really worked, but actually um, they wanted more training so that they could feel confident about continuing to engage with people in their own community uh, rather than taking them to hospital or asking the hospice to look after them. So um, I, I need to go back to your question, but you, I think your question was, is it about having different conversations or is it about building on their strengths and their assets? And I think it's a bit of both. Um, there are some people, you do meet people who definitely need professional services. And one of the reasons that I really love one of the recommendations of the Lancet Commission into the value of death and the realistic utopia that uh, that report describes is that it talks about professionals and communities working together. And I, I am not of the belief that actually uh, all dying can be managed just by uh, local people, local groups, local communities drawing on their assets we have a, uh, an opportunity to work in fantastic partnership. Yes, amazing. I love talking to you, Heather. You have such great answers and you're so on point. I'm just eating everything up. So um, uh, can I just go back to one of the things you said? So how did you, do you think that from your many experiences and the different sectors you've seen that you have seen, you have the ability to change your language of how you talk about this idea of a palliative approach to care. Because in many ways, waiting revolution, mm -hmm. our, our ability or our hope to go upstream is our, is our, uh, is our you know, the metaphors and meeting people where, the, where they're at and being able mm -hmm. to just hope for the best and plan for the rest, which is really sort mm -hmm. of a general way to talk about it for at any point in the journey. And we also recognize, you know, people like Catherine Mannix who are talking about ordinary dying and normalizing it. It's super important as well. And so, like you said, I don't think it's any... There's no one right answer, but you know, working with different cultures, working in different settings, do you yourself feel that um, you have different language of how you talk about it, or do you sort of uh, have sort of a, a way you introduce yourself in a neutral way? I guess. I think language is. I think language is everything, and uh, if you hadn't uh, said it, I would have said to you. I think that your um, 
strap line or your uh, approach, uh, the dual approach, which is, you know, um, hope for the best and plan for the rest. I think it's subtle, but I think it's absolutely um, fundamentally different to the way that we've talked uh, about end of life historically. And uh, I was, uh, my sister was asking me what I was doing tonight. And I was just telling her about the podcast and telling her about your organization. And she said, that is such an optimistic um, and um, encouraging way to get people to do some of the dual planning uh, that you uh, you aspire to, and and we're doing we're we're trying so hard to encourage more and more people to do. Um, yeah. So I think language is really really important, and I think it's not just about how we talk to uh, people who seek our help. Um, it's about how we talk about them to our colleagues, and one of the things that. I have been working really hard to do at St. Christopher's is to stop talking about patients, for example, because there is a power issue just in that very word. Um, and uh, really being much more considered about how you describe people uh, for whom you're offering uh, some care uh, and their relationship with you. And that feels, that, that's a small thing, but I think these issues of parity um, and potential uh, and whether you are frightening people or you're really encouraging people to take some responsibility and to feel empowered is really critical. And, and words are everything. Um, yeah. I'll be, yeah. I think yeah. of all of these as little like roadblocks, you know, or and if we can remove some of them by calling it, you know, person-centered care instead of patient-centered mm. care, mm. or you know, mm. talking instead of best case, worst case, you know, we talk about hope for walking two roads. Like these mm. are little, uh, you know, signals to to try to um, invite people in rather than scare them away. I think it's already a scary thing, and in fact, our you know, the waiting room revolution. The name of it was because it avoided calling people patients or caregivers or carers or Yes. What is the right label? There, you know, labels are, are 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 problematic. So a waiting room is where people are at, and we want to turn that into a place where people, yeah. uh, you know, can get information that they need to make the best decisions for themselves. If they don't and want I, it, you know, they still have the right for the information, and even if they don't want it, and that's all we're we're really yeah. trying to hope for. Um, that, that's yeah. very helpful. I mean, I think the other thing is that when when I was looking at uh, your work, and I've been thinking about. Um, some of the ways that we're engaging with the public and thinking about public education is that I think historically, a lot of professionals have gained their power by using words, terminology that they know deliberately, even if it's subconscious, no, no member of the lay public understands. It, it elevates them and gives them a, a huge buzz. And I'm not saying that people want to be difficult, but that's that's our, that's the history. Um, and what I really like about some of the work that you're doing and some of my own aspirations for upstream work is about how do you give more opportunity to people who um, know that they want something or are frightened and want to ask for clarity. How do you give them opportunity 
to ask and to shape the professional response to them instead of them waiting for the professionals to ask the question that then means that they can answer it in a way that means that they can get what they need. And um, I have witnessed so much effort in the UK to train professionals to be more person-centered, goals-oriented, um, sensitive with not enough substantial difference to know that it's been worth it. If we change our efforts and we help the public become much more confident and uh, to use a language that they know that people looking after them can hear and respond to, I think that's where the revolution sits. Heather, we're, you're, we are already a member. We're, you're, it's like you're, you're, it's like you're, you're promoting the, the waiting revolution. I mean, that was one of my questions because you have also held uh, the role of national clinical lead for Hospice mm -hmm. UK, which is a huge, large national organization. It represents the uh, 200 hospices in the UK, 200 plus, you know, serving hundreds of thousands of people each year. What was your role at Hospice UK? And do you think that there's synergies with what we're doing in that organization? I, I absolutely love that role, I have to say. Um, there were two bits to that job. Uh, one was that I was the executive lead on a commission, a national commission into the future of hospice care. And that gave, that was a two year program. It was deliberately uh, controversial and very inclusive. So it wasn't about only speaking inside the sector. In fact, there was active effort to engage people that were quite critical of the hospice sector um, and who worked very effectively outside of it uh, to get them to reflect and to help us grow as a sector. So that was fascinating work. And I worked with people whose uh, brains and intentions and um, work uh, behind them was just so exciting. So that, so that was the first bit. And then the second bit of that job was about connecting with clinicians across the country that were working in hospices and uh, either finding opportunities to support uh, areas of innovation or to encourage people to know what else was happening and to replicate it rather than to keep reinventing the wheel uh, all the time. And I met amazing pockets of uh, nurses, doctors, physios, a whole, you know, the, the whole multi-professional team. Um, many of them were pretty isolated. Um, uh, there were people doing amazing things and they were usually people that were utterly motivated at a vocational level and um, went the extra mile and so on. And, and I love that job because uh, what's, 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 you know, there's nothing nicer to do than to highlight best practice and encourage other people to um, adopt it. There's, can I just follow up on one small thing you said? You said yeah. you loved your job uh, when you were uh, the clinical lead for Hospice UK. And one of the things you did was that you commissioned the, the future of hospice. So where, mm -hmm. what, was, what were some of the key take-homes from that report when you reimagined what hospice would look like in the future? There was a, a couple of really key recommendations. Um, and a lot of it was around greater um, integration into the health and social care systems. It wasn't about giving away independence or about only 
only serving those systems, but really, uh, really focusing on being part of the solution of the future. And um, I think that COVID really did that for us in the UK. Um, I think hospices often sat on the outside of the system uh, or they chose which bits of the system they had a relationship with. And when COVID came and we all had to knuckle down and try and keep the systems going, actually hospices became flexible uh, in a way that they just hadn't been before. Uh, yeah. and, and they were looking for opportunities in the system to serve it um, differently. Um, but we also had recommendations about uh, partnerships across hospices um, and about working differently uh, with whole populations uh, and about moving our focus away from just the person in front of you to the whole population for whom you might want to assume some responsibility. And I think that's been part of the shift that we've seen at St. Christopher's, for example, from being primarily a cancer-based organization to something that is much more representative of what people are dying from in our area. Um, yeah. So I think that sort of population focus has been really, really uh, important. Um, yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying that, you know, it, if, if uh, it's sort of the same sort of, you know, reframe, if people were thinking hospice was just about end of life care, but the reframe is that they yeah. are actually catalysts and yeah. super connectors in their community. And they aren't only serving the patient or the person with the illness, but their whole family. Yeah. And in fact, more than that, because the families are part of a community. Yeah. And so if they can tap into that, they're sort of indispensable and they, and their role is yeah. so much more than just a place to die. Um, and I think um, one of the things I've been learning at St. Christopher's, we have a very um, innovative and um, quite challenging community action program in our organization. And it's led by an anthropologist, uh, a woman who hasn't come through the sort of palliative care um, uh, career trajectory. And she would say to me uh, as CEO, look, the difference between volunteers and the kind of community members that I'm working with, Heather, is that actually what we're doing is simply acting as a kind of anchor organization, as a facilitator for their own aspirations around end of life. When you have volunteers that come and work at St. Christopher's, they're buying into the St. Christopher's model of delivery. And she said, you need both but they are two different starting points. And um, I think that has been a really, really helpful insight for me because part of what your organization and Mary is doing is starting where people are, not with their relationship with palliative care. Um, and then there's a point in people's lives where they might need a relationship with us. And then it's very nice to have volunteers and others who are connected into those communities. Um, but they're in different places along that sort of upstream trajectory, aren't they? Yeah. So Heather, I mean, what you're describing is like the breakthrough moment, right? Where this idea of hospice palliative care is not only offered at end of life, but much earlier in the disease trajectory and peppered throughout as needed. 
And of course, that's what we're trying to do here at Waiting Room Revolution. But the question is really, why does that not happen more? I mean, what would it take to make hospices become a vehicle for community connection and a gateway for the best possible care throughout the entire illness? I think hypothetically, and I don't mean this in a rude way, but I think hypothetically, hospices could be a very good vehicle for the kind of work that you're talking about because they they have this opportunity. They sit with one foot in, in the communities that support them and in which they have vested interest and commitment, but they also sit in the uh, health and social care systems. And so they are this lovely bridge and they can often speak both languages. And that is hugely um, powerful. I think one of the problems is that even hospice care in the UK is increasingly risk averse. And um, when I was chief exec, uh, and I, for a while I shared my job with a great person called Sean, uh, when I was a joint chief executive with him, we took the decision uh, to move away from a policy of managing risk to being risk confident. And that was all about recognizing that actually everything we do and anything that we're going to do that's creative and is about sharing power and responsibility and so on is going to carry an element of risk. And that we needed to acknowledge that. And then we needed to, as long as our staff and our volunteers worked within the law and within some basic parameters, we needed to cover their back. If they took risks uh, that was about enabling people in their care to achieve their goals or to do uh, stuff for themselves, even if it uh, meant that they would fall or uh, die prematurely, we should make that happen. And um, uh, that was quite an undertaking because it, it wasn't just about um, liberating people in the organization we had to negotiate that with our board and there was a lot of concerns about would the regulatory authorities um, think that we were crazy um, to do it and I think a lot of hospices are increasingly fearful about being risk confident and mm. um, a lot of what you're describing is about allowing people autonomy and about listening and responding to what people want rather than what we think that they should have or what's safe, that puts that opportunity uh, at risk in itself. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, you are much more likely to get a hospice to pick up the kind of work that you're doing than you are a hospital or an NHS, a National Health Service uh, organization, not because there aren't creative people in there, but because they are so much more tightly governed um, yeah. and because they are working in these hugely bureaucratic and regulated organizations. So I know you've heard us present about our seven keys. And so from your experience working in hospices in the public in the UK, what do you think about the seven keys to navigating a life-changing diagnosis? They have got very simple actions that are associated with them. And um, I think uh, very often in the UK, when we talk about empowering the public, we, um, in our heads, it's about making them into mini professionals or um, 
expecting them in some way to be just like us, but um, without all the training and so on. And uh, one of the things that I really learned that was very powerful when I worked with the community development organization, they did a lot of work about reducing inequalities by introducing very simple behavioral change that was so noticeable inside the communities within which they worked, <coughs> excuse me, that the community members all started to emulate it and copy it. So um, one of the things that, uh, this is a long time ago, but uh, in that organization, they realized that some of the, uh, many of the people from some of the minority ethnic communities were getting very, very poor experiences of their GP. And so their general practitioner, their primary care provider. And so uh, they taught them two behavioral changes that were transformative. The first was when they went into their consultation, they would say, hello, doctor, how are you? And so straight away, the doctor was uh, encouraged, forced to connect with them as a person and to say something like, I'm very well, thank you, how are you? Or come sit down. So that was one thing. And then the second thing that they were taught was every time the doctor started to look at their computer, and type while they were talking, which was often a real problem because of language barrier or because of um, uh, not being able to see the lips or whatever, um, they would just stop talking. And then the doctor might say, carry on. And they'd say, oh, I'll just wait for you to finish. And then, I'm, then I'll keep going. So it was, it was polite, it was respectful. They were two behavioral changes that were transformative. And I, 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 what I like about your keys is that I think there's some behavioral change that is very small that could be transformative if everybody adopted it. Um, yes. You know uh, what? I, yeah, no, that's, like, that's the idea. They were action. We had to turn these little ideas. Well, they were first, they started off as gripes, you know, and as complaining and just being like, it's so broken. There's nothing that can be done. But then we had to think of how can we make this positive? How can we make this actionable and simple so that people would actually do it? And so the connect the dots or know your style, these are um, hopefully uh, clear enough, but also connected to a, an action that they could do tomorrow and not wait until yeah. someone certified that they were yeah. eligible for a palliative care consult before they could ask these questions. Yeah. It was really yeah. about that. So. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. We are trying to be coaches in many ways. Yeah. What uh, are you hopeful for the future? What gives you hope about the next uh, the next big thing about improving care for those with serious illness? I um, am hugely encouraged uh, by a lot of the global work that we do at St. Christopher's. And it's not so much that um, it's not so much that it's global. It's about the fact that I can see shifts in models of care that I believe we can replicate, uh, develop in the UK. I love uh, some of the experiences in other countries where people are bringing together community action and professional intervention. That feels very strong to me. I love the 
uh, efforts that some countries make to really invest in primary care uh, so that the majority of palliative care is being coordinated and delivered by primary care, not by specialists in hospitals and hospices. And I love some of the um, uh, hybrid roles that are developing. Uh, we've been working at St Christopher's in Bangladesh, where they've got a lot of community health workers, and they are people that are part of local communities uh, who live, for example, in the slum areas, and who learn uh, sufficient uh, healthcare-related um, uh, knowledge, uh, confidence, language, uh, they've got a health promotion focus, and they're working between the communities and individuals and the professionals. And I, I do, you know, I do believe that we in, we in the UK could relearn a lot of those things. Um, I am truly worried about how medicalized palliative care has become in the UK. And I am very, very worried about the level of overtreatment that exists generally in our health system. Um, because, because we can do it, uh, we're doing it. Um, and because people have got so much more autonomy and confidence uh, and quite often private resource, I'm seeing care for very, very elderly people who, who are suffering because of our overtreatment, to say nothing of its impact on climate and resources and so on. So at one level, I feel quite pessimistic but I, but I see enough of the innovation and the alternative means to believe that we can, 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 can adopt it and change the experiences here. Um, and that, that's, that's my optimism, really. I, I, I love, I think that's a great place to end our interview, but I have this one other question and we'll see where it goes, but you might often get asked as a, you know, a healthcare insider for advice. And so what advice do you have for patients and families facing a serious illness? I think that I would say to them, have the courage of your inner conviction that there is something wrong. And um, as a clinician, I know that the many times that I have told people the news that they have got an advancing condition that's unlikely to be cured, they will say to me, I already knew that. In my heart, I already knew that. And one of the saddest experiences for me in the UK system is that so many people die unnecessarily in hospital because they are still being treated at a time when they don't want the treatment and the clinicians don't really want to treat them. But nobody's had that conversation and everybody's making assumptions about what everybody wants and, and is the right thing to do. And so if I, my, you know, if, if I was able to say to um, the public one thing, I would say, if you've got a hunch that you are not getting better, and you want to be somewhere different, have the courage to say to your doctor or to the person who's looking after you, 
am I in the right place? Mm. Am I getting the, you know, do you believe that I'm um, getting the right care? And, and some people I reckon would have enough confidence to say, I'm frightened I'm dying. Is that the case? Yeah. And I think if they ask that, all the time that they wait for professionals to initiate those conversations, professionals aren't doing it. Yeah, that's one of our keys, invite yourself. Don't, uh, yes. don't wait to be invited and uh, don't yeah. assume no news is good news. You can just ask. Yeah. Uh, if you're not sure, ask. That's what be encouraged and share. Share what you think is happening and what does that mean. I'm noticing yeah. this. You know, if you don't know what question to ask, just say, "This is what I'm noticing. Is that uh, what I should be expecting?" And so, yeah. uh, so yeah. Heather, thank you so much. Oh, for, thank for you for a, for a great interview, and um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.